think we can make sense of it together as we move along. So reading uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 25, Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the circumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all those who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. A lot of circumcision there. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it's the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God, in whom you believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that don't exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he was considering his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have before us a lot of verbiage and a lot of strange language and cultural references that certainly aren't uh, necessarily comfortable and perhaps not well understood. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us clarity regarding what the gospel is, regarding how good it is, and, and how to make this ours by faith. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as a story I've heard, and like many stories, I hope it's true. I don't know if it is or not. In this case, the principle is good and holds whether or not the story is true. It's about a college speech class, and the assignment was to teach something and then drive home the point in a particularly powerful and poignant manner. And so one student stood up and gave a lecture on the law of the pendulum. Maybe you've heard this. The law is this, that a pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. So the student proceeded to spend 
10 or 15 minutes explaining the physical principles that govern a swinging object, a pendulum, how friction and gravity work to slow its acceleration so it makes less of an arc each time it swings until it comes to equilibrium. Well, uh, to illustrate this, he made a pendulum from three feet of string and a a child's toy top, and he suspended it from a blackboard using a thumbtack. And as it swung back and forth, he made chalk marks at its point and demonstrated uh, that the law held. Each time uh, this, he did this, afterwards he asked how many people in the class actually believed in the law of the pendulum, and all his classmates and his professor raised their hand. And that's when things got interesting. He asked his instructor to come to the front of the classroom, to climb on top of the table, and to take a seat in a chair with his back uh, up against a concrete wall. And next he proceeded to reveal, hanging from steel rafters above the classroom, a makeshift pendulum composed of four parachute cord, 500-pound test cords, uh, holding 250 pounds of weights. And holding uh, this pendulum of uh, deadly peril inches from his instructor's face, he asked one simple question. Do you believe the law of the pendulum? And uh, as the story goes, sweat broke out on his face. And uh, the professor whispered hoarsely, yes. And, And the student goes on and says that the law of the pendulum is true, when I release this mass, it will swing across the room and return just short of my release point, and your face will be spared. <laughs> and uh, again, asserting that he believed the law of the pendulum, the student let go. And, and, and the pendulum was so heavy, you could hear the swoosh of the air as it cut through. Uh, and as it made its return trip, the professor leaped from his chair in fear onto the floor. At which point, the student turned to the classmates and says, Class, does he believe the law of the pendulum? <laughs> At which they unanimously replied, No! <laughs> they don't. Or he doesn't. And what we're going to find today is, is some, a very similar law and situation is before us in this text. Paul has laid out our need for the gospel. And in chapter 3, he lays out, in some ways, what I'm going to call like the law or principle of the gospel. It's pretty clearly this justification, how God makes us right, is an act of God's grace through Jesus, his work, that we can only receive by faith. That's the law that he's laid out and explained at length in detail in chapter 3. This is how it works. If you're going to be made right with God, it's because God does it graciously through the work of Jesus, and you have to receive it by faith. That's the law. In chapter 4, now we get to the test. Do you really believe it? He's inviting us onto the table. Do, do you really believe this law? And he's going to demonstrate it. He's going to demonstrate it to us in the lives of a couple of people, Abraham and David. He's going to test us whether or not we really believe it. And then, like a good teacher, he's going to show it to us a couple of different ways. He's going to show us what faith really looks like. Not only what we're supposed to believe, but what believing really looks like. And tonight, uh, as we do this, we're going to address a couple obstacles to belief that I think we all bump up against. Some of you, perhaps haven't yet been able to clear some of these obstacles. You're thinking, I'd like to believe this, but I don't get it. And I don't, this is a real problem for me. Uh, I, I think tonight should be helpful for you. I pray it will be as we consider how faith is like receiving a good gift, resting from performance, and then relying on a faithful God. So first, faith is like receiving a good gift. 
And uh, this is the first thing that Paul talks about in chapter 4. And in, in, in very right away in verse 2, he, he brings up the word again, justification. If Abraham was justified by works, that is, if Abraham was made right, declared right by God. And justification, if you remember, is it's an exchange. There's, there's two things on the ledger. And this text makes it clear as we go along. God does two kinds of counting. It's a double counting. In verses 3 and 5, if you look carefully, you'll see that uh, God counted to him as righteousness. Again, in verse 5, um, that God justifies the ungodly as faith is counted as righteousness. That's one side of the equation. God counts those who trust in Jesus as righteous. He considers them to be righteous. The other part of the counting we see in verse 8 is what David says, that we have sins, guilt, a debt, and he does not count that. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There's two kinds of counting. We have a great debt. God does not count that against us. Jesus has great righteousness. God counts that for us. Justification is a double counting. We're not guilty and in debt. We are instead righteous like Jesus. And he goes on and says, this gift of justification is not something you can earn. It's a gift. This is the the emphasis of verse 4 in this idea. You can't earn this. This is not a wage. This is not something you can go out and perform and make your own. Instead, it's a gift. It's a gift by the God, this text says, who justifies the ungodly. Just think about that phrase. That is not what almost any of you think about God. God is the God, the God of the Bible, who justifies the ungodly. Really? He counts right those who are not right. That's what this gift is. And the only way you can make this your own is to receive it by faith. This is what verse 3 says, what verse 5 says, is what he said in chapter 3. You can't earn it. You can't, uh, can't make it your own in any other way. You can't steal it. You can either reject it, and you can take your time up and make your mind up and investigate it and make an educated decision. I would encourage you to do that. But ultimately, you have to receive it. That's all you can do is receive it by faith. Now, one of the obstacles we have to doing this is that uh, I, I think it's familiarity of two kinds. Two kinds of familiarity that we encounter here. One, I'm just going to call it cultural familiarity. The fact that we grew up even in a post-Christian culture here in America means many people assume they know what Christianity is about. You think you know what the gospel is about. And it's something like God sort of loves us, so he sort of forgives us, so we're sort of okay. And it actually ends up looking like God grading us on a curve, which is not quite right. I mean, he's a little bit gracious, but he's a little bit judgmental, and so I don't really get it, but I think it'll be okay because grace gracious. This is what Ross Duthit, who's a religion scholar who writes the New York Times, calls bad religion. And it's bad because it's a little bit true, but it's a derivation of what it's supposed to be true. And most of us have got a good, healthy dose of that, and not a very good dose of what the Bible actually says is true. So a cultural familiarity has given us an imposter a knockoff of the good gift, not the real good gift. The real good gift is Jesus, God, through Jesus, justifies the ungodly. He declares them right. Now, there's another kind of familiarity that I think is just as dangerous, and that probably characterizes many more of you in this room, and I'm going to call it ungrateful familiarity. You probably heard the message. You may have even heard this text preached like half a dozen times. You could tell me what justification is, and you could tell me about double imputation and all this other stuff. And you've received it. And it's like so many other things you've received in your life. It's got a place in your room, 
but it sort of collects dust and it's lost its shine. And, uh, and, and it's not that you receive it or reject it. It's just sort of it's there. You're just sort of apathetic about it. And uh, what do you do with that? What do you think about that? Actually, do you have the clicker? Could you go back to the third stanza of uh, It Is Well With My Soul? Right? Yeah, yeah, that one. Nope. Oh, the bliss. One more. That one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I shouldn't have expected you to know what the third stanza was. So tomorrow, my wife and kids, minus my son, you'll be seeing a lot of Caleb in the next 10 days, uh, they're flying to St. Louis to visit family, but also to attend the, the memorial service of a good friend of ours. My wife and I probably wouldn't know each other or, or certainly be married uh, if it wasn't for this guy who played a, an important part in us coming together and, and knowing one another. He was a, a great man who was at the church in which I lived and attended when I was in St. Louis. And... Uh, at our church on Sunday evenings, it's one of those strange churches that has Sunday evening and morning services, and people that go to both. And uh, we were, I was at one particular Sunday evening service, and I noticed him do this, and he actually did this every time he went to Sunday evening service. Uh, at this church, you could stand up and make a hymn request and, or a song request, and he would stand up and always request the same hymn, and it was, It Is Well With My Soul. And the way it would work is you would stand up and request a hymn, and the penis was great, and so you would just request anything, and they'd say, what verses? And you'd roll out and say, two. And uh, he would always stand up and say, it's well with my soul. Verse three. And then he'd sit down. And the person them seeing, because they knew that how the routine would go, uh, they'd say, uh, excuse me, David, uh, what about the second verse? And he would stand up and say, verse three again. And he'd sit down. And so he always made us sing this verse twice. And I don't think he was like pedagogically beating it into us, I think this is who he was. And I think this is sort of the antidote to your ungrateful familiarity. It's not a different message. It's not less of a message. It's come back to the goodness of the gospel. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. You know, David here in, in verse 7 says, Blessed is he whose sins forgiven. That word means happy. It means fullness. It means peace. It means shalom. It's all these wonderful things. And I'm not, I'm not saying, especially me, I am not saying you're supposed to be walking around happy and joyful all the time. That's not me. You should certainly be happier than me. Um, uh, that'd be good. But if you're discontent and angry and not happy all the time, and you actually believe this message, there's something wrong right here. There may be other things in your life that are wrong, things that you can pray for God to change, but you've got to come back to this and say, do I really believe this? Is it really still good to me? Is it always good? Do I understand that Jesus paid it all, every bit of it, for free? He did it all because he loves me. And if that doesn't begin to melt you so that you actually can say, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus then there's something wrong here. It's okay to admit that. Take that to the Lord too. Jesus, there's something wrong here. Melt my cold heart. So the first thing we see is that uh, faith is receiving a good gift. Uh, and the, the, the obstacle is familiarity. The, the next obstacle is a little bit different. and It's the obstacle of narrowness, of exclusivity. And we see it right away. Paul says, look at this beautiful gift of the gospel for anyone who'll believe. And he, he already knows what's coming, an objection. Hey, um, are you sure it's for everybody? Are you sure it's for everybody? Verse 9, is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? 
And then uh, in verse 13, what about those people that don't have the law and don't keep it? And what Paul is encountering is what all of us encounter. It's a narrowness. It's an effort to say, uh, the, the, the message is good, but it's only for certain types of people. And I want to talk about t- narrowness in two different ways. And this is going to take your full engagement, but I think you can do it. Um, the, the first is the narrowness that we most often encounter in our culture. It's, it's this idea that when Christians say, hey, this is the true religion. We really believe this. You need to believe this. It's the idea that when we say this faith alone is the right one, then many people, and some of you in the room might say, that is the most arrogant, insulting thing in the world, that you could actually believe that. Christianity is far too exclusive. All the religions in the world are basically alike. And Christianity is the only one that's saying, no, you've got to believe this or you're going to hell. And what I want to say, well, one, the better answer is what's going to follow in a moment. I think you misunderstand Christianity. But also what I want to do and respond to this, and I do this graciously, is to say, your view right there, as you expressed it, is every bit as arrogant as mine. Only a Western European or American from the 20th or 21st century would have that view. No one in the history of the world besides us in the last 150 years has had the view that we should all just get along and believe the same thing and it doesn't matter. Seven billion people in the world, and most most of us think we believe what's right. Jews, Muslims, Christians. And you would like to say, well, why don't you just wash out all the differences and be like me? So you're right. I'm not trying to beat you up. What I'm I'm trying to say is exclusivity and narrowness is part of the norm. Like we're all exclusive and we're all narrow and we're all saying you just need to be like me. And what I want to say is Christianity is narrow, but it's not as narrow as you think. It's actually much better than you imagine. Um, Paul is leaning against two ongoing influences that people use to try to narrow the field. Paul, Jesus, God saying, the gospel is beautiful. It's for anyone that will take it. It's a wonderful gift. You just have to receive it. And we say, no, it's only for people with a certain pedigree. You have to be be the right kind of person. Paul's presenting this to the world, and he's he's imagining faithful Jews who received the promise from Abraham that they would be the the saviors of the world through whom God blessed the world and saying, hey, you've got to receive the sign. You're the special people. God works with the Jews. And those people are saying, yeah, God gives the gift to the right kind of people, right? And we're the right kind of people. Uh, we are right, we are made right by God because we're the right kind of folks. That's the way many people think. Uh, in some ways, I've been thinking about Harvard a lot lately um, because they offered me a full ride. That's a lie. Um, <laughs> I've actually been thinking about Harvard a lot because I've been listening to The National a lot. And they have a song, Sea of Love, in which uh, Joe, and I don't know if Joe's a male or female, uh, is rushing down because they learned something at Harvard. And I've been thinking, what in the world does this song mean? And I've been singing a lot, and my children are actually walking around singing, I see you rushing down. Anyway, it's been on my mind a lot. And I'm trying to figure out what Joe learned at Harvard. And uh, it got me thinking about Harvard. And Harvard before 1955 was a very different place than it is now. If you went to Harvard before 1955, it would look completely different than it does today. Before 1955, Harvard, and probably Yale too, and a lot of the other Ivy League schools, was, ri- was just full of wealthy white people. I'm not making that up. I mean, it, it was based on pedigree, prestige, class, family, heritage. That's what it was based on. It was based on pedigree. And in 1955, Harvard said, that's sort of boring. 
why don't we change it up and make it based on performance, on merit? Anyone in the whole world, and this is the way we get the best students, really, anyone in the whole world that can hack it can come. And it became based on performance. And so now you go to Harvard, and it's the best and the brightest from all over the world, and the place looks radically different. And this brings us to the nature of performance. This is what people who are, who are thinking about the law in verse 13 are saying. Uh, you really bless and accept those who keep up, who keep the law, who do what's right, who can hack it, right? The good people, right? Paul, that's what you mean? The good people who love God and do what's right, they're the ones you give the gift to, right? The performers. They're the ones who get into Harvard. They're the ones that earn it. You've got to be the right kind of person because you do what's right in order to get the gift, right? That's what Harvard's like. That's what we think God's kingdom is like. And both of these things are narrowing, cutting off, trying to limit what God might do uh, in, in, among his people. And uh, we do this all the time in our culture. Most of your social clubs are based on this. I mean, they really are. I do not ever want you to be like this in any way. If I sense it, if I, if I feel like some of you are doing it on purpose, we're going to have a conversation. And, and, and it will be gracious because I realize we do this naturally. Like, this is who we are. I mean, but every social fraternity, every academic fraternity, it's either pedigree or performance. No one says, anybody that wants to come, come be a part of my club. You simply say, y'all are a bunch of losers then. Uh, and in RUF, we can do something different because we're saying, yeah, sort of. I mean, losers enough where God had to die for us. Um, but valuable enough that he would. Why don't you come figure it out together? So... How do we combat the narrowness of saying of, of people saying, hey, you either got to measure up by pedigree or performance? What Paul does is says, it's got nothing to do with it. Your pedigree, your performance has absolutely nothing to do with it. In fact, if you want to get on what God's doing, you have to bring absolutely nothing to the table. You can't bring a thing to the table. It's received by faith alone. Regarding pedigree, he says in verse 10, do I need to remind you that Abraham received circumcision after he was declared righteous. You know, you know, God found this pagan wandering around in the desert and said, hey, uh, I'm going to make this promise to you. Do you believe it? He's like, okay, I believe you. You're righteous. I forgive you all your debts. You're my beloved son. Now, now go do this painful thing. And he did it later. His circumcision had nothing to do with his right standing. It had nothing to do with it. Neither did his ethnicity. And regarding performance... In keeping the law, Paul argues, you don't want to go that way because when you bring law in, what you bring in is transgression. If you want to perform well enough so that you can secure God's love, what you're going to find is you never do it well enough. If you think God should treat you well based on your efforts, what you're going to find out is he actually treats you poorly based on your efforts because you don't measure up. If you actually want to receive God's gift, you just need to shut up and let him do the work and receive it. Because when you do the work, you mess it up. It depends on faith alone. In some ways, what Paul is saying here is we can rest from our performance because God has finished the work. This sort of reminds me of like my wife trying to bake anything in my home. She wants my children. Actually, the Chardonnays are really good at this. They're great at including my children in the baking and in the work, but we're not. And uh, that's because we don't trust our kids. So my wife bakes things for y'all, and they're usually good. But, you know, all it takes is my, my daughter thinking, like, in her little, little beautiful brain at this three-year-old age, like, I love mommy, and I want to help the students. And she throws, like, 
She does nothing but watch. She feels like she's participating, and she's receiving the gift of participating. And Linda's done it all. And at the end, she just adds a little bit of something that completely ruins it. You know, she has like two tablespoons of baking soda. And all of a sudden, like, your mouth's drying up, and it feels like you're eating sand. And in some ways, that's what we try to do so often when we argue with God or think we have to measure up or earn his love. The work is done. Jesus did it all. You just need to rest. He's done the work. You just need to rest. And this should radically impact the way we relate to each other. It really should. Think about it. In God's mind, if neither your pedigree, who you are, whose you were, whether your daddy was rich and famous or your daddy was a drunk that hit you, where you came from, what you've done or what you're doing, your performance, it does not matter to God. In this regard, I mean, it matters because he loves you and he cares for you. But in the regard of declaring you right and offering you this gift, it does not matter one iota. If it does not matter to him, why in the world would you ever hold it against someone else? Paul starts this whole thing off saying, hey, does Abraham have a reason to boast? Does Abraham have anything to be proud about? He was, he was the one that received this gift. He's our great father. Does he have anything to be proud about? No. And what I want to tell you is, as it regards how God has loved you and made you right, you don't have anything either, and neither do I. And what this gives you is another gift. It's called humility. And we don't like it, because we don't actually like to think that we're like all equal and humble, and that I'm no more special than you. You will not love each other like you should until you believe this and know this. God is making a global community of all kinds of broken people from all kinds of different places and backgrounds, and some of them really messy sinners and some of them really proud sinners. You will not love each other like the family you're supposed to be until you realize you brought nothing to the table to commend God to love you. There's nothing special about you that God chose you over someone else. This is a gift. This is the beginning of how you begin to love one another. Well, I'm almost out, I am out of time. I've got to finish this last thing. I'll do it in three minutes. Uh, faith is receiving a good gift. It's resting from your performance. It's also relying on a faithful God. And I have to go here because I have to finish at the cross, which is where Paul finishes. Uh, the last objection is that of reasonableness. I can't, I can't actually believe this because it's crazy. And whether it's Bertrand Russell or Richard Dawkins, whoever you might be reading, uh, telling you that you simply can't believe things because they're nonsense, because there's not evidence for them. Uh, I want you to follow the train of thought that's here. And if you, if you want to talk about this more, I'd love to. I love epistemology. We can talk about it all day. Um, that, frankly, you don't walk a moment through this life without exercising faith. Um, but what we see with Abraham is Abraham receives a promise that he's going to be the father of many nations, that God is going to use him and his family to bless the world. And he receives this promise when he's about 100 years old. No babies. His wife, as the text says, her womb is barren. Now, I don't want to get graphic, but um, I'm just going to assume when you're 100 years old and your wife is barren and she's like 90 years old, not only do you know as they do, he recognizes like she's old, I'm old. Like, not only do you recognize, we can't have kids, you don't even want to think about having sex with each other. Like, like this is beyond the realm of all possibility, right? Like, those things have stopped working a long time ago, and they know it. 
They know it. And, I, and I, I'm saying this not to be funny or to be graphic, but to make the point, faith actually faces reality. Abraham wasn't eating mushrooms, walking around, imagining God was going to do this crazy thing. Um, he looked reality in the face and said, I'm really old. And uh, I see my wife and all, but I don't even want to sleep with her. And how in order do I have a baby? I mean, I, I, I'm putting things in his mouth. I don't want to do that. But it, it's amazing what's being offered in the face of reality. And yet Abraham looks at it in the face of reality and says, I can still believe based on what he knows about God. He relies on God. Why? Verse 17. It's the God who gives life to the dead, who calls into existence things that don't exist. It's a God who's powerful enough to create and to resurrect. He can create a baby. He can resurrect my dead wife's womb, my wife's dead womb. He can do both those things. He can do all of that. Yeah. This verse 21 says he's fully convinced that God can do this. Yeah. It boils down to this. He knew God could do it. It's a matter of would he. That's a matter of faithfulness. God, you can do it, but are you faithful to keep your promise? And being fully convinced means he thought, he believed God would keep his promise. You know, Abraham had a good reason to believe. And I believe we even have a better reason to believe today. We have the whole story, the Bible, which he didn't have. And we actually have the clearest sign of God's faithfulness there is, and that's the cross. That God's faithfulness is most clearly revealed in the cross. And this is where Paul finishes. This is where we're going to finish. Verse 23. The words it was counted to him were not written just for Abraham's sake, but ours also. Be counted to us who believe in him. That's Jesus who was raised from the dead. Him, excuse me, God the Father who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What Paul's saying here is, if you really want to know God's faithfulness, you look at the cross. Would God love us enough to go the extra mile, all the way, to do what needed to be done to draw us near? He would go so far that he would deliver up his son, his beloved son. Could God actually make us right? Could God bring life back to our dead hearts? Could God forgive us and love us? He's powerful enough to raise his own son from the dead. He could, he would. He's done everything that needs to be done. One of our, uh, our best theologians has written, when you look at the cross, what do you see? You should see God's awesome faithfulness. Nothing, not even the instinct to spare his own son, will turn him back from keeping his word. And this is the word that you need to hear. If you're a Christian, God loves you. He's forgiven you as a gift it's a finished work. You can rest in it. You don't have to do anything to earn it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. The mere idea that you should do something to earn it is an insult to what he's done. He loves you, not because of anything you've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And you just need to rest in that work. You just need to receive that gift and rely on him. Let's pray together.